Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, and welcome to a new episode of New Books Network. Today is March 9th, 2023. My name is Joaquin Rivaya Martinez. I am an associate professor of history at Texas State University and will be the host of this interview. Today, we will be chatting with historian Rani Henrik Anderson about his book, Lakota, an indigenous history, which he co-wrote with anthropologist David Postums. The result of their interdisciplinary collaboration is a wonderful book published by the University of Oklahoma Press last year. Good morning from Texas and welcome to New Books Network, Dr. Anderson. Uh, good morning or good af- good evening from Finland and uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us. So I'll start by introducing your co-writer. Uh, David Postumos holds a PhD in anthropology and is the author of All My Relatives, Exploring Lakota Ontology, Belief and Ritual, and the novel The Legend of the Dogman. He's a senior market analyst at the Martech Group. But today we have with us uh, Dr. Henderson, uh, who holds a PhD in history from the University of Tampere in Finland. He was McDonnell Douglas Chair and is currently Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Helsinki. He has held a position as a visiting research fellow at Indiana University, where he had the luck to work with Lakota experts Ray DeMali and Doug Parks. Uh, he has published several scholarly articles about topics in Native American history. And he's also the author of the books The Lakota Ghost Dance of 1890, which was published by the University of Nebraska Press in, two, in 2008, and uh, A Whirlwind Passed Through Our Country, Lakota Voices of the Ghost Dance, published by Oklahoma University Press in 2018. So Rani, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become a historian? And were there any influential mentors or other figures in your early career? Well, that is a good question. When did I become a historian? I, I, I don't know. I have been interested in history and, and cultures ever since I was a kid. I remember reading as many books on history and uh, co- different world cultures as a 10-year-old. And, and so when the time came to go to the university, and history was the natural choice for me. And, and uh, at the university, I, of course, became acquainted with American studies, which kind of enhanced my experience as a scholar. But but uh, I don't know if I had any early, early mentors, mentors per se, but obviously everybody uh, doing U.S. and American history were, I was looking up to in a way. And then later on in Indiana, when I studied with Dr. DeMali, that was, of course, he has been the most influential person in my academic career for sure. Mm-hmm. So where does your interest in indigenous peoples, and in particular on on the Lakota, uh, come from? Yeah, I, I think it's also somehow related to my life, uh, childhood experiences. I, I was reading a lot of books on 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 um, different cultures, uh, and I started early on started thinking about how differently people kind of view the world around them and and how they behave differently and why that is and I, I couldn't put it into words as a kid of course and and so on but but that's been a constant interest to me and how how 
how I think about the world, how people in the past thought about the world and how their cultures affect their decisions and if you want to use the word agency in past events. And and American history, as I said, has always been interesting to me and, and Native Americans especially. And when I was at the university and wanted to do a or needed to do a master's thesis, I started to think about Lakota and, and especially the ghost and spirit. And I kind of felt that some something was missing there in the larger narrative. And that was, of course, the Lakota voice on the ghost dance. And that kind of took hold of me for a long time. And, and I spent quite a few years researching that particular topic. So it's been an early interest of mine, and it has never gone away, gone away I guess. <laughs> All right. So for this book in particular, you have collaborated with David Postumus, an anthropologist. Yes. How did you two... How did you two come up with the idea of this book? And, and what was it like to work with uh, somebody, with a specialist from a different discipline? Well, uh, when I went to Indiana in 1999 to do my PhD, I went to uh, study at American Indian uh, Studies Research Institute with Ray DeMalley, who is an anthropologist, who was an anthropologist. So anthropology was familiar to me and ethnohistory from the from the beginning. But there, of course, I got, got to be taught by a person who knows more about the Lakota, a scholar who knew more about the Lakota than I think anybody did. So I was familiar with anthropological theories and methods and whatnot. And that's where I also met Dave, or actually I met him on Pine Ridge for the first time in 2009, I think. And Dave was also uh, writing his dissertation under Ray DeMalley at the, at the time. So when I wanted to write a book about a history of the Lakota, I thought, I know something, but I would like to have somebody who was really deeply set in anthropology, deeper than I am. And and Dave was one of the choices, and he immediately said yes when I asked him, "Would you like to do this?" And then we, well, let's see what we can come up with and how we can combine my my understanding of Lakota history and culture and his understanding of Lakota history and culture and his experiences on uh, working with Lakota communities and 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 so on. And we started working, and it took us longer than we thought, partly because of the pandemic. We couldn't do all the interviews and visiting people that we that we were planning to. And we were writing. I was in Finland. He was in, in the U.S. and spent a lot of hours over, the, over Zoom <laughs> writing it and, and thinking about this. So it was not an easy, easy thing to do. So before getting into the nuances of your book... Um... Can you briefly explain to our listeners who the Lakota are and how they are different from the, the so-called Dakota with, with the D and the Sioux? Okay, well, we can start with the term Sioux. That, of course, is a French rendering of uh, a Ojibwe word, Nado Wesiwak, which is a, uh, basically means small snakes or little snakes. And, and the Lakota are the western branch of the Sioux nation, if, we'll, if you will, or the Ocheti Shakoi, which is a kind of mythological, well, I wouldn't like to say the mythological, but a symbol of, of the different Sioux, Sioux tribes or, or and so on. So the uh, Dakota, Nakota, and the Lakota. And the Lakota are the westernmost people or have been living on the westernmost edges of the Sioux nation for a, for a few centuries now and a distinct group uh, living on the plains. So maybe that's the short, short, short of it. 
Right, right. So, so the Dakota and the Lakota are related, but this book deals specifically with the Lakota, who are the yeah. westernmost true, right? Yeah, they are all related and they have the same language with different dialects and very pretty similar cultural customs and belief systems and ceremonies. And, and they are all considered allied, which is what the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota word actually means. It's people who are allied uh, with, uh, with each other and, and uh, they are all related. In a way, in one way or or another. So, mm -hmm. so what was your what was your main goal in writing this book, Rani? Well, as I said, uh, with the ghost dance, I felt that there was a story missing there, and that was the Lakota story. And I know uh, at the get go, when we started to think about this book, we didn't want to write a how would I say a traditional history of the Lakota. That has been done. So, what I wanted especially, and, and Dave too, wanted to give voice to the Lakota people as much as possible. And as historians, ethno-historians, we kind of wanted to delve into the culture and the belief systems and start from there. Because in the end, it doesn't matter what you or I think about Lakota history and Lakota place in, in or Lakota homelands or whatnot. It, it's what the Lakota people think or thought in the past. So we wanted to go from the start from the Lakota perspectives of land and belonging into certain areas, certain place, and tell a story from that perspective. Of course, we are non-native as well, so we cannot tell the story from you know as a Lakota would. But we wanted to start from the cultural and cult cultural historical background and start delving into sources that would tell us more about Lakota perspectives than, uh, let's say, a uh, letter by some Indian agent or any traditional sources. So we wanted to give more voice to the Lakotas in writing this book. And in a way, I think it was an idea that while we knew that it would not be a perfect book on, on Lakota history, Lakota culture written by two non-natives, non but it would be a step towards that, that yes, you can try to understand Lakota way of thinking and you can you can base your analysis on, on Lakota sources, but you have to really dig deep to find them. So that's, I think, what was, what was the starting point of this book. <clears throat> Uh, as a fellow ethno-historian, in this, in my case, I'm, I also have a background in anthropology. As a matter of fact, my my doctoral degree is in anthropology. But I have to say that it's remarkable the degree to which you have managed to precisely do that, to rescue Lakota voices and testimonies from the past and from more recent, the more recent past as well, and incorporate them into this this book. I think, uh, as a matter of fact, I think that this book was outstanding since its inception in two ways. First, because because of your interdisciplinary collaboration with David Postumus, and second, uh, because you have truly made an effort to incorporate Lakota testimonies throughout the narrative. Uh, so you have relied on Lakota voices contained in the archival records, for instance, at, dip at diplomatic encounters, uh, ethnographic interviews, winter counts, and some of your, your own or more recent interviews with modern-day Lakota people. So could you tell us a little bit about your different sources? Okay, yeah, thank you. I'm glad that <laughs> if you saw that happening in the book. But yeah, we have, um, the sources are, for each chapter, basically, there's a different set of sources. And, and of course, they they mix a little bit. But there are the winter cows that, of course, are uh, Lakota histories, the stories written on, on, on Hyde at first, and then on ledger books and so on. And those are really detailed histories, but you have to know how to read them. It's not 
always easy and you can't of course just rely on them you have to compare like with any sources you have to i like to compare at least two different sources to make any decisions how how things happened or, or and so on but uh winter counts are one but there's also for the early part of the book there is also um, a lot of um, um testimonies by lakotas through treaty councils and sure there may have been problems with interpretation and and translations and whatnot but those are still key documents to, uh, where Lakota people actually tell what they think and how they view white encroachment on their, la- on their lands, or some letters that we were able to find in early times exactly telling what the Lakota think about trespassing uh, migrants and so on. So those are kind of the key sources. And the really rich source actually are the Commissioner of Indian Affairs reports with the uh, agents' reports, because there are a lot of stuff that are included in there uh, of daily basis discussions with the uh, uh, Lakota leaders. So there's a lot of material in those, uh, but you have to also be able to kind of see that. For later on, there's more and more letters written by Lakota people, some of them in a Lakota language, some in, in Dakota. We have translated a lot of those and used those, especially for the 80, 1880s onwards. Uh, so that's a set of uh, sources. The 20th century is tricky because the material gets to be really voluminous and there's a lot of material in the archives. So we had to kind of make decisions where to go and we wanted to also include a lot of uh, Lakota accounts there as well. So uh, some tribal council meeting minutes are, are really rich sources for dealing with, for example, why are they building a, a, a dam on our, our, our reservation? And they are discussing that for for several days on, on, on in the tribal councils. And th- those sources are were a pretty good resource as well. And of course, as you said, we we have a lot of Lakota friends who have contributed to this book in many ways and, and telling us how how life on Lakota reservation reservations are is is today and also about you know oral histories, how it used to be and all the way going back to the Battle of Little Bughorn family stories and ghost dance and so on. So there's a lot of different kinds of sources and, and none is more important than the other. And then we corroborate our sources with some more traditional historical sources. But the approach is that Lakota sources first, and then we see what the, uh, let's say, American sources say. Not using American sources first and then see what the Lakota sources would say. So that is, I think, the approach with the sources. Right, right. The book consists of an introduction and three parts. Uh, Part one provides a strong foundation for the rest of the book, uh, as you offer kind of a concise but thorough description of Lakota society as it was in the 19th century before the reservation period, right? Uh, I think think actually that whole section can be used as a reference work for anyone interested in traditional Lakota culture. You've managed to, you know, compress in there a a lot of data, actually. Um, Yeah. That was actually a tricky uh, section to write because we wanted to set the mood or set the tone for the reader so that they get, on the one hand, they get to the history of the Lakota, but also have the understanding of how the society may have been structured early on in the early 19th century onwards, and partly still is. And how you kind of need to understand that a little bit so that you understand the changes that happened over reservations and and also the uh, flexibility of the society. But that was a little bit of a tricky section to write so that it doesn't 
become a list of things. Right, right. No, but I think it flows actually. I, I in fact, I think those those three chapters, um, I mean, are obviously essential to make sense of of the Lakota actions and and understand their perspective later on in the book, right? So I, I particularly enjoy your description of like the Lakota belief system and the and the kinship system. So can you please share with our audience some of the ways in which Lakota beliefs or traditional Lakota beliefs are different from the traditional Western worldview or Christianity? Oh, well, that's uh, a tall task. But we, we can just say that uh, we can start from the idea that there is no single God or God-like being in Lakota cosmology or Lakota way of thinking. There is Wakan and Wakan Tanka. Waka is all things that could be considered sacred or mysterious or beyond the understanding of a human being. And Wakan Tanka is then the uh, totality of those things. It can be anything. It can be, a, as we I think right in the book, it can be a, a shooting star or a birth of a baby or a some old Lakota say, I have a, there's a list in uh, Walker book that what what things are Wakan, so a toad is Wakan and, and so on and so on. So everything is Wakan. So it's a relationship with the environment and your surroundings that uh, constitutes Lakota belief system. And um, so at least in the late 19th century, some of the Lakota um, informants told Walker and other anthropologists about uh, their Wakan Tanka, how it constitutes of 16 different aspects and and, and uh, all of them, and those can also change. So the, the Lakota belief system is not a dogmatic religion like uh, Christianity. There's no firm rules how how you worship or how you pray. Uh, it's individualistic and it's uh, it can change. And holy men, for example, uh, through their visions and their experiences, change uh, ceremonies and rituals that add to it. So it's a constantly changing and adapting. Uh, uh, system of belief and that I think is the major difference uh, between uh, Christianity and, and Lakota religion and it also plays it comes into play when Christianity is introduced because the Lakotas can just kind of uh, absorb some Christian teachings without forgetting their own traditions that can be seen on reservations even today so and it's also the relationship with the uh, environment and 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 how you are supposed to be in that uh, environment. Also towards other human beings, other animals, and of course Lakota stories explain why they are related to certain animals in certain places and, and, and so on. And this, of course, applies to other indigenous people's uh, worldviews as well, not only the Lakota. But it's something, of course, that as a non, non-native you cannot, you know, you can understand it and you can try to understand it, you can try to explain it, but as it, it's really, you can't say that you should talk for it or talk for their religion. I think always feel a bit awkward talking about Lakota religion because it's it's beyond my kind of, right, command, right. if you will. So, so how about the Lakota kinship uh, system and the political organization? Can you tell us just a little bit, uh, some of the the key aspects of it. Sure. Well, the key for Lakota uh, political organization, let's say in the 19th century, the Tioshpaye, or lodge group or a band in English. And that's a group, small group of people 
usually all related to each other. A, bro- a man and his brothers and their families who who choose a leader, a trancha, from there uh, amongst them, and and then uh, sometimes they are uh, merged into larger groups and and so on. But that, of course, you know, it's also a question of how to translate terms. Like what is a tribe, what is a band, what is a sub-band, and so on. And so we try to explain, almost like explain those divisions away a little bit, because the Lakota word Oyate people can be applied to like a larger divisions like Hunkpapa or Oglala and, and to the Chioshpayas and so on. So a neat categorization is a Western idea. You don't have to have a neat a categorization, uh, or at least not a hierarchical categorization. Uh, Lakota people, uh, the uh, sizes of the groups or bands or Tioshpayes or larger groups change over time. They merge, they split. And that was a constant flux uh, in, in the society. It was never a uh, set deal that these people are these and that's it. It was always changing. And with uh, strong leaders could uh, leave a Tioshpaya and create their own. And people just followed them if they felt that they are they were worthy of it. So... Uh, from early on, looking at uh, European-American white travelers or government officials, they tried to make neat categories of who the Lakota are. And we don't think that is uh, necessarily necessary to understand who these, who, who the uh, 19th century Lakota were, how they operated. And then there's, of course, the leadership structure. There's never one you know, chief, although the whites tried to make several people uh, chiefs who would be overall leaders of the entire Lakota people or Lakota Oyate. And that just didn't work. That was not the Lakota way of doing things. Although they, during the 19th century, changed the system so that like Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull became uh, chiefs to rule over a large group of people that was not uh, done in traditional older society. So again, a Lakota uh, societal structures changed and they tried to change it too actively to meet the challenges of the 19th century. So, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, this, we could talk for hours about Lakota. Social. Right, right, right. So, so I, th- I, think, I think our listeners will have a sense of, of how it worked. So, so moving on uh, into part two of the book, which covers Lakota history up to the reservation period. Um, so how did trade, for instance, or more generally early contact with your uh, Americans or people of European descent affect the Lakota? Yeah, that is, of course, a good question. And uh, if you think about a time period of 100 years from, let's say, 1800 to 1900, that was, of course, a devastating experience for the Lakota. But if uh, looking at some of the winter counts from the early uh, period like let's say 1770s to 1830s and 40s, the winter counts mostly talk about uh, friendly relationships, about trade, acquiring uh, guns, uh, utensils, and and so on from uh, from the traders. And there, incidents between Lakota and traders or whites in general are rare at this early early period. But trade, of course, affected the Lakota societies in, in, in the way that people got really early on dependent on some of the trade goods. And it kind of uh, launched a wedge in Lakota society when some of the Lakotas wanted to do the trading with the Americans. Some wanted to trade with the French or Canadians in the north and others didn't want to trade at all. So uh, divisiveness 
uh, entered Lakota society quite early on through uh, trading with the whites. But generally kind of bad feelings started 1840s onwards, uh, at least if you read uh, Winter Counts and, and some other Lakota early. Um, we have actually one letter from 1846, I think it was, where 12 Lakota leaders sent a letter to the president saying that, hey, 1825, we signed a treaty with you guys and, and agreed that your people would be allowed to go through our lands if you give us some compensation. But now this, there are more people than agreed upon and less compensation than agreed upon. Could you please adhere to your Treaty of 1825, which is an early letter showing that the Lakotas knew what to do. And the letter is about Lakotas evoking a relationship, almost a kinship relationship with the president who is there to uh, provide the Lakotas something in exchange for the trespassing, uh, allowing whites to trespass their lands. So these are really interesting uh, relationships early on. One thing, though, that needs to be mentioned, of course, are, are the diseases that came along with the traders and, of course, alcohol. And, and there's no denial about that, that alcohol uh, started to cause problems in, in Lakota society er, quite early in the 1820s, at least. Right, right. Actually, um, I think it's interesting how these um, early contacts, especially in the in the first half of the or, or in the central decades of the 19th century or so um, there was growing factionalism among the Lakota themselves right because of the presence of the whites because of all the factors that you mentioned so um, you know of course some of them better known um, or more uh, popular let's say uh, aspects of Lakota history have to do with the war for the Black Hills, uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn, the killing of their main leaders at the time, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, and then, of course, the Ghost Dance and Wounded Knee. Um, in looking at all these, in looking at all these important historical events and processes through a Lakota lens, is there any takeout? For this period, this this last uh, two or three decades of the of the nineteenth century, that in your view hasn't been actually sufficiently developed in the in the historiography before. Well, yeah, in general, I think when historians write about the Lakota, quite often they only talk about warfare. Sure, warfare with the whites, warfare with the uh, other Indian nations, were was an important part of Lakota life. Absolutely key part of Lakota life. But there is more to that. They are Radio Mali used to always say that why why always call Lakota men warriors? They were men, husbands, brothers and and and, and fathers, first and foremost. And and quite often women are completely ignoring that narrative. We try to bring uh, women in, not maybe in the center, but as part of a family life as well, as part of that that story. Um, which is difficult because there are not that many sources left to talk about what women did uh, uh, before reservation period, especially. But it's also, you know, that I think we say somewhere in the book that the Lakotas too had an agenda. And the agenda was to make the most out of the situation, you know, trading with the whites and trying to keep them out of their uh, country. So, 
the narrative should not be only viewed from, uh, you know, the Seventh Cavalry going to Little Big Horn, but also how the Lakota saw that, how they tried to meet the challenges and how they adapted their society. Yeah, there were divisions, but they also made alliances and they changed the uh, structure of the leadership uh, and they went to their traditions and culture. And when there was, a, you know, fighting with the white people, white, whites going on, they, they sought help from their uh, holy man, which Asha Wakan and so on. It's not that like the Lakotas would have been just sitting there without knowing what was going around them. They, they had pretty good sense of, of what the Americans were trying to do. And they tried their best to, to kind of meet that and also uh, change the societal structures. But the traditions were so strong as well that in warfare, when they tried to make one leader over, you know, decide over strategy or something, it did not work that often. The idea of individuals trying to find glory and the battlefield just was too strong, and and quite often the idea was you know ruined. But there's a lot of that kind of stuff that has been missing, and also that the Lakotas were pushing westward as well at the same time. They were fighting the Crows and others, and and if you look at the winter counts, the longer. If we get into the 19th century, the further west the Lakotas are fighting the flat flatheads and Shoshones and so on, going from Missouri westwards. It's also a story of trying to maintain a Lakota domain and even expanding it. Right, right. So in part three of the book, uh, you discuss uh, Lakota history since the late 19th century. Um to what extent did the assimilation policies of the United States uh, succeed in uh, transforming Lakota society? And in what ways did the Lakota manage to circumvent the types of culture change that was being promoted uh, from Washington? Okay. Yeah. Let me go a little bit back. You, you mentioned also Wounded Knee and the ghost dance. And of course, I've been working a lot on that. Uh, and that's actually a good place where we can think about how what is missing, especially in the ghost dance. The story has always been that the Lakotas tried to start a war against the authorities. Whereas I think I have in my previous books also demonstrated this was not the case. They were looking at their traditions Again, a transforming way of looking at their traditions into the ghost dance and through the ghost dance try to look for a better future, which of course then ends up in, in Woody Knee for many reasons. But the reason one reason is not for the Lakotas to trying to make a war. They the ghost dance even among the Lakota was a peaceful religion that led to to confrontation due to many reasons, which we don't have time to go into right now. But that also leads us to the reservation period. Because uh, uh, reservations of reservation period, of course, for the Lakota starts from 1868 for the Laramie Treaty, at least for, for part of the Lakotas. <clears throat> and the changes come through uh, the, uh, the uh, Americans trying to impose different forms of Christianity on the Lakota and education and disrupting their traditional way of life. The buffalo is gone. There's no hunting left. There's no warfare left. There's nowhere to expand. They were confined on a reservation. And that also affects uh, uh, society. The Tioshpayes are still there, but the government did, uh, distributes them along different river bottoms and different districts, trying to emphasize individual persons over tribe, over, over 
family over Tioshpai. And that that's a profound change in Lakota society. And also, also the men are, have nothing to do on the reservation or maybe they do some uh, job, take some jobs, make some money. But it, it's a different, completely different lifestyle. And of course, when you they prohibit Lakota traditional uh, ceremonies in the early 1880s. That's a complete cultural uh, destruction or, or, or devastation, which of course is part of the ghost story as well. But uh, by denying people their right to practice their own religion, they of course, or they talk their languages in schools and so on, the whole identity is lost. The culture has no base anymore. So many turn to Christianity. There are a lot of stories about, uh, let's say, Gaul, the famous Papa chiefs, who uh, first did not want to see a church or go to the church. But when he finally got to the church, he felt that it was good that there was some kind of religion, a way to worship again, because the old traditions were forbidden. Some of the old traditions, of course, uh, are practiced uh, underground or in secret, but it's not the same. There's no sun dance anymore. All the uh, basic uh, parts of society that kept the Lakota together are forcefully taken away from them. The kids are sent to schools and and, and you can't talk your own language. It's hard to even imagine what that must have been like. It, it, you can't write about that. <laughs> right, right. So Lakota people um, have always been or played a prominent role in, in the struggle for indigenous rights in the United States. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Lakota involvement in the American Indian movement and other political activism uh, in the in the last decades? Okay, sure. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I would also like to say that writing that part three was kind of uh, a different experience because uh, 19th century, there are these major wars that you can write about and it's kind of uh, those wars and events kind of carry the story onwards, whereas the 19th century is more about economic survival, uh, spiritual survival, resilience, revitalization of language, culture, coming the back. 20th, you, Rani, you mean the 20th century, right? Oh, sorry, yeah, the 20th century, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the 20th century. So it, we needed to write it differently. So we thought about different themes and we wanted the theme, or it actually emerged while we were writing, is the uh, kind of resilience and, and adaptation and and strength of Lakota culture that oh, despite all the oppression in the late 19th and early 20th century, the basic traditions are still there and they just needed maybe 1970s and uh, uh, to kind of emerge, 1950s, 60s, 70s to emerge again to where we are today with the language revitalization and all the cultural revitalization. So that uh, part three was kind of more of a narrative of first survival, then coming back. But yeah, okay. Uh, The Lakotas, of course, have been really well known for their resistance, both in 19th century and then uh, participation in in AIM at Wunini in 1973. And that also was for us a delicate thing to write about because AIM, participation in AIM and AIM actions, especially in Pine Ridge, were divisive, and they still are. We have friends who who were AIM members, and we have friends there who 
really do, did not like what AIM did on, on Pine Ridge. Uh, and we know the political situation on, on the reservations at the time was very complicated. So how to write about a thing that is so strongly felt by both sides in a way so that we would not offend anybody but still write an accurate his portrayal in a historical portrayal that was very hard and i think there might be people who don't like what we wrote we kind of wrote what aim did and also how it affected the societies and how it had positive things but also some negatives so it's it's a mixed mixed and complex uh, kind of heritage that aim left on lakota reservations but i don't think anybody would deny it that aim uh, strengthened lakota identity Native, native identity in general. Uh, it uh, okay, aim, um, came to Lakota Reservation at the time when religious revitalization was kind of starting already. And some people actually are of the opinion that it would have started without AIM as well. But AIM uh, kind of, how would I say, strengthened it. And some people think that it, without AIM, the religious and language and whatnot revitalization, the strong feeling of identity would not have been the same or would have not reached the levels that it is today. Um, Speaking of religion, uh, historical developments in the last century and a half or so uh, have given rise to a rather diverse Lakota society. And one of the areas in which this diversity is perhaps most evident is religion. So can you tell us a little bit about um, that religious diversity and how some contemporary practices continue to reflect the traditional belief system? Okay, yeah, that that, that is uh, interesting um, in many ways. And as I said, I've been interested in <laughs> human thinking about Wakan, if you will, from a kid. And for me, uh, I did not really understand, I don't know if I understand still, but my, my first visits to Pine Ridge really were... Uh, and other Lakota reservations, but especially Pioneers were really kind of eye-opening to me how Lakota uh, religious beliefs can incorporate and how you can be a traditional Lakota, believe in in the traditional Lakota way at the same time as you attend a Christian church. And at first that was a bit puzzling to me, but it it is uh, syncretism, I guess, is the word. To be used, but yeah, the, the, the history of that, of course, is that uh, there have been both Catholics and Protestants on Lakota reservations ever since eighteen seven, late seven, eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, and they were fighting. Last that they said, fighting for Lakota souls uh, from that uh, from the get go, and that religious diversity, of course, is still seen there on the reservations today. But what has been happening in recent years, and I think Dave would be better. Uh, uh, discussing this than I am because he did uh, spend several years on Pine Ridge, uh, do living with the people and doing research on on this religious diversity on the reservations. But uh, in recent years, there has been a lot of um, going back to the old ways, and the, uh, I think one example of this is that the uh, number of Sundances held on reservations each year has exploded. Like 30 years ago, there could have been one uh, Sundance uh, on Pine Ridge per, per summer. Now, there, I think a couple of years ago, they had like 60 or so. And people are attending those. And attending a Sundance does not mean that you would not be able to go to 
a Catholic church next morning. And that I find really interesting. And it's also from the opposite side. The Catholic Catholic church has kind of tried to give in a little bit so that there can be Lakota uh, honoring songs or Lakota, not, well, not maybe honoring, but Lakota songs uh, throughout a Catholic service in, in, in a Catholic church. So, yeah. That, that's that's interesting. I, I that are, that's very reminiscent of what happened with with the Comanches, as a matter of fact. Right. Yeah. Um, what are what are some of the challenges that Lakota people are facing nowadays in in the in the twenty first century, and how how do they face those challenges? Oh, that that I wish I would have better answers to that, but the challenges are so many. It is true that a lot of things have, have become better. There's no doubt about that. And I think we end the book with a quite a positive final final chapter. We acknowledge all the problems, but um, we all know that some of the Lakota reservations are some of the poorest counties in, in, in the places in the United States, and that has not gone away. And poverty brings with it, of course, certain problems, unemployment alcoholism, drug abuse, and of course the issue with missing and murdered indigenous women is also an issue on Lakota reservations. <clears throat> but there are some things that have changed, and one thing that I want to uh, mention, of course, is the language. There's genuine uh, hard efforts to bring Lakota language back from uh, uh, kindergarten gotten all the way to high schools and, and universities. And like uh, my friend Bob uh, Braveheart says, that with the language, we will, they will, again, uh, have their own identity. And he says that only through our own, own uh, belief in our own co- old customs, our own uh, religion, our language, and the kinship rules can we decolonize. That's what he said. And that is an issue. How to decolonize when the colonizer is still there? <laughs> it's easier to decolonize if the colonizer has left, but it hasn't. So, or I think what Bob meant with that is that by adhering to their own system of belief, their own ways of life, they can maintain a distinct cultural identity as a Lakota people, even within this colonial context that is United States. But it requires a lot from the people that are living in this uh, setting where the dominant uh, society is still enforcing some racist rules and and, uh, making certain decisions over them that they cannot affect themselves. But like healthcare and these kinds of things have become better. And there's, of course, the energy question, uh, food sovereignty and these things that are are really popular in Lakota reservations today. How to become more, more sovereign through uh, solar uh, solar energy or wind energy and and these kinds of things, so and of course education in general. Today's uh, youth are getting pretty good education and they know what's out there and they have access to all all the things like we the rest of us do and they know how to maybe I hope uh, in the future better find ways to help their people and get educated outside and then use their knowledge. To, to help their people. Mm-hmm. So how, how endangered is the language? Uh, how many speakers uh, or fluent speakers are there? Do oh, you know? oh, 
that varies. Depends on people who you talk to. I think um, I saw a number of 9,000 a couple of years ago, but that, of course, you know, changes rapidly. And what they are trying to do is to uh, maybe in a 10 or 15 years have a new... Uh, how a new generation of fluent speakers through education. I've been uh, visiting uh, Pine Ridge Red Cloud Indian School quite a few times, and uh, they have, and I know that they have this in other uh, reserva- on other reservations and other towns as well, like uh, flat, uh, language nests where they start learning. The kids start learning la- the Lakota language already in in, in you know daycare or whatever uh, kindergarten, and and that's uh, amazing what they have achieved. Uh, with uh, those programs in in the past twenty years, but does uh, um, how fluent these children then become, and how many there are going to be in the future? It's hard to say. And the elderly people who are fluent are actually, of course, getting old. So I don't know what the exact numbers are, but they are trying really, really hard to revitalize the language. All right, Rani. Thank you very much for all your explanations. Um, so, moving on, are you involved in any ongoing projects? What's next for you? <laughs> yeah, I guess I've always, I always got some projects. Uh, we are actually working with a couple of colleagues on a, on a book in honor of Ray Demali and Doug Parks, and and that should be out next year, hopefully. And I'm also engaged in in a, a larger project on indigenous borderlands, and and also looking at. Indigenous people and national parks, through in through how to incorporate indigenous voices in in the park system. So there's always new projects waiting, and just need time, time and right, uh, right. <laughs> energy. But I will continue working on these uh, topics, and always will go back to Lakota reservations to to work on on some some well, projects. It has been a pleasure to chat with you, Rani. Uh, thank you very much for sharing with the audience of New Books Network some of the nuances of your book. We'll, thank good you. luck with your with your projects, and I look forward to interviewing you again soon. Okay, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure, and I hope uh, I got to clarify a few things. Thank you. you. Definitely did. And to all of you, many thanks for listening to New Books Network. Kindest regards, and I'll say goodbye for the present.